0: Well, good evening. We're going to be talking this evening about Acts chapter 12, Peter in in prison. And you've uh, read the chapter or are familiar with it. And the, the first thing I want to point out is all the similarities between what was going on with Peter in prison and coming out of prison and with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there's so many of these of these parallels. So Acts chapter 12. Let's start off verse three. It emphasises then were the days of unleavened bread, and actually it stresses it twice. In verse four, in the in the King James, it says that the intention of, of Herod was to bring him uh, Peter out of uh, prison and, uh, and and kill him after Easter. Now, of course. This is the very time of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This was Passover time. So that's one similarity. And of course it's a Roman governor, Herod, who's working with the leaders of the Jews to do this, exactly how it was with the Lord Jesus. So then, verse 5, Peter's kept in prison and there's prayer made by the whole church. And verse 6, he's sleeping between two soldiers. Possibly a little bit like Jesus crucified in between two two men. And then it says that there were the keepers stood outside the door keeping the prison. Very similar, of course, to how when the Lord Jesus was buried, the same kind of soldiers were put on guard there to stand outside the, uh, the grave. And then, seven, an angel of the Lord appears, just as happened at the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus. There's a great light. And then Peter is smitten upon the side. Jesus again, smitten upon the side with a spear. And then uh, verse 11, it stresses that uh, this was done by the hand of Herod and because of the expectation of the Jews. That's so similar in terms of language with the language that we meet about the Lord Jesus and how it came about that, that he was put up for trial and condemned to, to death. There's this kind of coalition between the Jews and and the, the, the Roman rulers. Then we, we come on to the whole thing about when Peter comes out of prison and a woman, Rhoda, a woman, understands that this is for real, or this is Peter, and she comes and tells the disciples, and they say Verse 15, you're crazy. You're mad. <laughs> That's exactly what the same men said, uh, the same, well, disciples anyway, the same group of people said to a woman who came and said, Jesus is alive. And then when they really do realize that it's Peter, verse 16, they are astonished and also embarrassed, we could say. A very similar scene, really. Those men are standing in front of this servant girl, Rhoda, saying, sort of, ah, okay, so you were right. It's so similar, isn't it, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, Peter says, verse 17, Go and show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departs into another place. It's just what the Lord Jesus did. He appeared to the disciples in a sort of a closed meeting. And then he said, you know, go and uh, tell the whole world. And he also said to the women when he first met them, go and tell my brethren. And then he departed, as it were, to, to another place. Now, this is all so, so similar. What's the point of all these similarities? Is this just mere kind of artistry? Uh, some sort of way of writing that alludes to some other sort of situation that's happened. Well, I don't think so. This is God's Word. I mean, there is a purpose in all this, even if we can't perceive it. But quite simply, on a quite simple level, I would say this. That the whole thing was set up so that both Peter And the disciples, the believers at that time, would perceive this. Now, whether they did or not is another question. But it was set up so that they might perceive that and think, wow, this is deja vu. This is is what happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus. It should have prepared them for a major unexpected miracle. But it seems it didn't. Although later, of course, they would have thought, wow, we should have seen it all dropping into place. Now, this is what's happening in our lives. Nothing in our lives is just pure, random chance. Not in our lives at all. God is working. And why is he working and how is he working? I believe he's doing this so often in order to show us how similar our situations are with, above all, the Lord Jesus, but also many other Bible characters that that we read about. And why? Again, is that just artistry? Is that just a a flourish, as it were, on on the picture of our lives? Not at all. It is so that we might come into living relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's so that, for us, we don't just exist and let life happen to us, but that we live life, that we see the meaning of life. Now, when we, we talk about, yeah, the Bible gives meaning to life, Jesus gives meaning to life, well, we have to put meaning into those words. What do we mean by that? the Bible gives meaning to my life. I have found the meaning of life. I mean, these are are grand things to say, grand ideas, but what in concrete terms does that mean? Well, I think it means that if you reflect, and reflection and meditation is not so popular these days, but if, as we should, we do that, I think we'll perceive that there is a, a hand in our lives, a divine hand, not forcing us, but enabling us to see that what's going on even in in what we might think are absolutely irrelevant details is all part of a larger plan to help us see the similarities between ourselves and the lord jesus now on a very basic level why did jesus have to suffer so much why couldn't he have lived as it were in a monastery with the essenes maybe and been perfect and then slit his throat or drunk the cup of poison in a classical sort of sense, and died. Why Why so much suffering? Not just physical, but so much cruelty emotionally. Betrayal by a friend, my own familiar friend. All that sort of thing. Why was his dear mother, had, why did she have to be present at, at the crucifixion of her son? Yeah, the whole thing, it gets so painful the more you think about it. Why? And I don't think there's necessarily any theological reason. You can say, well, it was to fulfill the type of this, that, or the other in the Old Testament. But that, to me, only throws the question a stage further back. Yeah, and, but why, ultimately? Well, I would suggest that one reason, and this is a you know, multifactorial uh, issue, but one reason why the Lord suffered as much as he did was so that there could be no man or woman on this earth who ever says, nobody knows what I feel like or what I'm going through. Maybe that's true on on this world, on this earth. But the point is, there is someone who in essence does know. And he is in heaven. And he knows. Why does he know? How does he know? How can he empathize and not just sympathize? He can empathize because he went through such a hugely wide range of suffering, mentally, physically, so that in all those experiences, he might be able to directly empathize with each of us. So there was Peter in prison and all the believers praying for him. And the whole thing was set up in a very artless way. this is, to use an old English word, providence. This is providence. This is the hand of God working in human life. So that the whole thing is set up, situation after situation in our lives, is set up. So that we might perceive... Some sort of connection between us and this heavenly Lord Jesus. The man, the more than man, who is in heaven, who loves us to the end and who is coming again. And yet, of course, it depends to some degree upon our perception. And here is where the Bible becomes meaningful. Because it is here in this record that we are sort of practically empowered to see the situation, to see the similarities between ourselves and the Lord. And insofar as we're familiar with the text of Scripture in that sense we will become more aware of what's likely to be going on in our lives. That's why when people say to me what's the point in reading the Bible when I can read a chapter and understand nothing? Should I just forget it? What's the point to do that? I just read the bits that I like. And I would say, no, read it and get familiar with it. Why? Because one day it might all fit into its place. Well, in fact, it will do, in due course. One example of that is right here in this chapter. Okay, the angel comes, strikes Peter on the side, which is a slightly strange way to wake a guy up. I mean, you know, if you want to wake someone up, Particularly who you love. I mean, the angel was there to save Peter. I mean, you don't boot the guy on the side. Well, I don't anyway. I wouldn't like it if my wife did that. It would get me out of bed one morning, and she wouldn't like it if I did that to her. Why? Why do you boot the guy on the side? Well, to bring back to his awareness, who else was beaten, it was, it was pushed in the side, was beaten, as it were, on the side, at Easter time, at Passover time. Jesus, But anyway, the angel then says, verse 8, gird yourself, put your girdle on, and bind on your sandals, put your coat on, and follow me. Walk after me. Now, the Lord Jesus had spoken just about that back in uh, John 21. You remember that business when Peter and, and John are following the Lord? And he says, John 21, verse 18, Jesus says to, or had said to Peter, Truly I I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you wanted to. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you, put your girdle on, and carry you where you don't want to go. Now, the angel appears to him and says to him, Peter put your girdle on, you do it, and put your shoes on, and you follow me to freedom, which is where you want to be. Now, if Peter was a, had well, meditated upon these words of Jesus, which I'm sure he had, he would have thought, wow, I can put my own girdle on, put my own sandals and walk where I want to, which is to freedom. Phew, my time is not yet. The time to die is not yet. This is what Jesus said would happen to me when I was young. And only when I'm old is it going to be different. Now he may or may not have perceived the connection. I'm pretty sure he did perceive it. And it's the same with you and I. Things happen in human life. And at times we may think, wow, that's it. We see the connection straight away with a biblical precedent, with a Bible character, above all, with some situation in the life of the Lord Jesus and that strengthens us. If we're ignorant of scripture, if we don't think it matters, it's all a of of history, it's all words on, you know, black print on white paper, all words on a computer screen, we won't get it. And then we will despair that our life seems to be without meaning, and all these random events happen to us, and we can make sense of it. And so, to put it crudely, The Bible is what makes the difference. And not just the Bible per se, but of course our meditation upon it and our feeling ourselves into the situation. So, if we get back to Acts chapter 12, let's think about prayer. Prayer was made, verse 5, without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And then, as you know, Verse twelve, they gathered themselves together to pray. Well, we could say, and I guess we often do in our sort of European twenty first century way, well, okay, let's all agree to pray for such and such situation. Some somebody with some terrible illness or some particularly difficult situation, okay, let's pray. And let's remember to pray for them in the week. But to say, guys, come together we're going to have a meeting, you know, round at Margaret's place, eight o'clock next Wednesday, to pray. What's the longest prayer you have ever said? How many minutes did it take? I seriously doubt, just because I've asked that question a lot of people, I seriously doubt whether most believers today have prayed more than 15 minutes in one go now you may say ah oh, well in my case i i have done or i do in which case well done but on average what i can see most people say yeah after 15 minutes or so now i need a break and you know go to sleep unfortunately too much prayer is done cuddled up in in bed we're all nice and comfy and the next thing we know it's morning these guys in the early church took prayer seriously. If prayer changes things, then we have simply got to be more prayerful people for others. And so they got together to pray, not just one evening, not just two or three hours, but the whole night, because this thing happened in the middle of the night when Peter rocked up there in the middle of the night. So these people were praying together, and why did they meet together? Why not say, Hey, everybody, well just remember to pray for Peter? because it's so difficult to be sustained in prayer. So this then is a real serious suggestion from me to you, to get together with some people, other believers, and pray for several hours. It's a challenge, I know. It's a very, very difficult challenge. But if prayer changes things, well, why not? If they could do it, why can't we? I don't think we should Put such a huge distance in our own minds between the first century church and us in the 21st century and uh, because of the 20 centuries in between us, I think we, we tend to, but we shouldn't because they are there as our living pattern but anyway, they were praying for Peter to be released for Peter in some sense, and then ding dong. And Rhoda goes, oh, wow, it's Peter. And she comes in, she's so excited, Peter's here. And they're rude to her to say, you're crazy. You're crazy. Now, to tell someone that they were crazy in the first century was not not quite the same sort of way that, that we might have. Unfortunately, in our age, certainly here in Europe, uh, there are like swear words you can use or sudden certain language that's not appropriate. That sort of language was was not so common in the first century. If you really wanted to insult somebody, you, you liken them, for example, to a, a donkey or some sort of animal doing a certain function or something like that. And to tell someone that you're mentally disturbed was not the sort of offhand way that we might say to each other, you're crazy, Oh, she's a lovely person, but man, she's crazy. You know, that that that's sort of almost an expression of fondness. For them, to the tell a woman, you are mad, was really rude. They were so convinced this could not be the case. And when she keeps on saying, it is him, they say, okay, fine. Well, it must be his guardian angel. There must be someone who looks really like Peter, guardian angel. It must be him. So you see, they were praying, like... Stop disturbing us, Rhoda. We're praying for Peter. Like, get mad with your craziness. And all right, you say, some guy there looks like Peter. It's his angel. See, they believed in angels. They believed in God. They they believed in supernatural occurrences. That, yeah, uh, an angel could look like Peter and you must be his angel. Come to see us. But but it could be the answer to their prayers. Oh, no. (laughs) That wasn't even on their agenda. Now, How many times has that happened to us? That we pray and pray and pray, and yet, really, we have no serious expectation of there being an answer. And that's sadly what was happening with these very fine people. I mean, how can we knock them? Fine, wonderful brethren and sisters who were there praying like this, but when the answer came, they didn't get it. Now, that's a theme throughout this part of the Acts of the Apostles. You've got it in chapter 10, with the whole thing about... Peter seeing the vision three times. He's told, kill and eat. When the Lord Jesus had, in Mark 7, you can read it, had said that it's not what goes into your mouth that's the problem, it's what comes out of the heart that's the problem. This he said, it adds in Mark's Gospel, and it seems Mark is sort of writing for Peter, but that's another story for another long winter evening. Um, But anyway, in Mark's record, which has some connection with Peter, It actually adds, this he said, making all foods clean. Now, Peter knew those words, but when Jesus, or the the Lord gives him three times a vision and says, now eat these unclean animals, no, I can't. I absolutely can't. He doesn't even say, well, I can't because the Old Testament says you shouldn't. He just says, I can't because I never have done. And then this the whole thing with Cornelius. Like, we read that and think... Well, Peter, is it, was it such a big deal to baptize a, a Gentile? I mean, hadn't Jesus told you to go and preach the gospel to all the nations on earth? Why, why was there such an issue with you? Why were you so slow to get it? And why did the Jewish brethren like, get crazy about the whole issue of baptizing Gentiles? In other words, the disciples themselves, the believers themselves, were very, very slow to get basic things. But again, if we think, well, there's such a a distance between them in the first century and us in the 21st, well, you know, we're not quite like that. Yes, we are. This is the whole point, that we are equally dumb and blind, just on different points. You can read Scripture 101 times, the same passage, and then one day, wow, that's what it obviously means and every time you read it after that it seems quite obvious and why didn't I get it? And one of the fundamental things that is all through the scriptures particularly explicit in the New Testament is this that we who have believed in in Christ in the Son of God we will be saved by his grace we will live forever in his kingdom we are God's people And yet, how many of us really, really believe it? And I'm sure for the ages of eternity, on and on and on and on and on, you and I will be thinking, why didn't I get it? Why did I not just take God at his word? That he loves me. And again, when you ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? As I said earlier, it's multifactorial. But one One of the reasons is simply so that we might get it, finally. That we might see that he is for real about giving us salvation. He placarded forth his son, dead for us, in that awful way, as public as it could be, to get the point over. This is how much I love you. And this is how certain is your salvation. God could could save us anyway how he wants when he wants but he chose this method and i believe one of the reasons he did that was to elicit faith in us in his love god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son this is the the proof of his love god commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for the ungodly it is a commendation of his love put it in another way maybe more theological Paul says that the Lord died Romans 15 to confirm the promises made to the fathers if God's made a a covenant does he need to confirm it? well that's only if there's a doubt about it well the doubt is not from his side the doubt is from our side and so that's another reason why Jesus died And it's shouting at us, we will be saved. God loves you. And because these terms have been so abused in a simplistic uh, way, in an inappropriate manner in some Christian quarters, there's no reason to, to actually doubt the basic truth of them. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's as simple as that. Anyway, getting back to Peter, there he was standing outside the door. It actually is quite specific that he was not just outside the door, but seven—sorry, uh, thirteen. Peter knocked at the door of the gate, so he's at the gate. Okay, and people are inside the house praying, and the. The fact he's there is because he has been taken there by an angel. And it's very astonishing for the people, the believers, inside the house. Any bells ringing in your mind? Knocking at the door of a gate of a house inside which there are believers and prayer is being made. Led there by an angel. It's something in the life of Peter. And it's in Acts chapter 10. The light's coming on. Cornelius had a vision from an angel to send men to Joppa. So these men come from his place there to uh, Joppa. And there is Peter in, the ha- in a house praying. And if you read Acts 10, you'll see the very same language is used. Th- these men stand at the gate and they knock. And Peter comes down to them. He's been praying. And he finds it difficult to accept what the reality of the situation. It's so similar. Knocking at the door of a gate of a house, inside which are believers who are praying. And the person who's sent to the door is led there by an angel. And it's astonishing for the person inside the house. That's eight points of similarity, and you can look and find some more. That, that can be, uh, be your homework. But what's the point of that? Well, of course, the whole story is the other way around. In Acts 10, it was Peter inside the house. And it was someone else led by an angel to knock on his door. Now he is led by an angel to knock at the door of the gate and someone comes down to open to him just as he came down to open the door and inside they're praying. Everything was turned around. And that very often happens in our lives. Something will happen to us. And then the situation repeats but from another angle. And we are the person who w- was in the situation that, uh, that we were in uh, before just the roles are reversed why is that again I don't think it's like you know God is an artist and uh, there is a certain uh, element to artistry where you can give a flourish on, on a job which uh, on a piece of artistry I mean that does not in itself have particular meaning it is a flourish and no more but with God, it's not like that. The whole purpose of this, of this whole thing, the similarities of the two situations in Acts 10 and Acts 12, was so that Peter had been able to think himself into the mindset of those people praying inside that house. Because if you and I had been Peter, we might have been like slightly annoyed. Like we just had an angel with us, and these guys are praying for me to be released. And they don't believe it. And they're rude to the girl who does believe it. Like, come might have been slightly annoyed. But not Peter. Not, according to the record, anyway. And I suggest that that was because he had been there himself. He'd been inside a house praying. and Ding-dong, doorbell goes, etc. Um, and it's someone who's been sent there by an angel. And that's what happens. That we are led through weak moments of our lives and then they go. we see them repeating in the life of somebody else. Why? So that we might be patient and forgiving and understanding with them. Now my last point is about angels. Clearly they believed in guardian angels and the angel of the Lord does encamp around those who fear him. And as Israel were given a, an angel to lead them through the wilderness... It seems that there was an angel very active in the life of the first century. You can make a good case that the comforter, in one line of thought, of interpretation, refers to an angel, patterned on the angel that led Israel through the wilderness. So, in Acts, there's quite an emphasis on angels working. The angel came and smote Peter on the side, it says. That's in verse 7. But later on in the chapter, in verse 23, an angel of the Lord smote Herod, because he was proud and arrogant and didn't give God the glory. So the angel smote two people. Smote Peter on the side to wake him up, and then later goes and smites Herod. So... There's a a pattern. I think the connection between those two verses, if you're making notes, that's verse 7 and verse 23, the connection between those two verses is, I think, to show us that the angels work in human life according to some kind of pattern. And that's why we do get the sense of déjà vu. I have, in essence, been here before, or this, what I'm going through, is so similar to what she went through, or he's going through in some other country. Again, our lives are not just a pack of chance. Life does not just happen to us. A lot of people just let life happen to them. And they sit there passively and watch a telly and let it happen a bit more and a bit more. But for us... We are to, to think it all through. And you see Peter doing that a lot in this chapter and in chapter 10, with the whole thing about rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then eventually he, he thinks on the vision and says, right, now I get it. He says to Cornelius, now I've been taught to call no man unclean, when he'd actually been taught to not call an animal unclean. But anyway, so he, for example, he says in verse 11, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me when it first happens we're told in verse 9 he didn't really think it was true he thought he'd seen a vision again repeating a mistake really that was made at the resurrection when it seems that they passed off some of this as seeing a vision of angels that well it wasn't actually an angel there it was well a vision we, we, we think we saw them in a sort of trance or something and He didn't learn from that. They, the others in the house, hadn't learned the whole thing. That a woman comes and says, sort of, he is risen indeed. It's happened. And they say, you're you're crazy. You're mad. We're not going to believe you. And I love the way, I really do love the way, that God chose to work through these women. That servant girl, I mean, a slave girl, she was nothing. Absolutely, she had no power over anything. Not even her own body. Uh, and she owned nothing not even a body not even who she was, not her clothes, not nothing and yet God chose to work through her just like he chose to work through a woman Mary Magdalene who had been immoral who had been a prostitute out of whom he would cast seven demons which would imply that she had been mentally disturbed he chose to work through her as his number one witness to the resurrection of his son now if you and I think well, why would God work through me? I am this, that, the other. And we think of all our dysfunctions. No. It's exactly those people through whom God prefers to work. It's not the slick and the smart and the swift and the etc. in this life. It's not them that God generally chooses to work through. It's through very ordinary people like, like you and I. That's really how God loves to work. And it's also, by the way, how we should prefer to work when it comes to our doing of the Lord's work. Anyway, just one passing, well, closing thought, really, about the angel. The angel led Peter through one street and then disappeared. In other words, Peter didn't see him anymore. Now, you imagine how Peter would have felt. My angel gets him up the gate opens and he's saying well I'm with the angel even a great big iron gate opens and the keepers of uh, the gate uh, are powerless wow I'm walking with the angel down this street no one's going to do anything to me because I've got my angel next to me wow look at him he's got light all around him wow oh he's gone angel was still there Peter just didn't see him uh, you, you remember the whole thing with um, Elisha's servant and <clears throat> he, they come to, to Dothan and the servant is scared and he prays to God and says open his eyes and the, and the servant sees the, the whole place surrounded with horses and chariots of fire chariots full of angels and Elisha had such faith that he didn't actually say oh show me He knew they were there. He had so much faith they were there. He didn't even have to say to God, Oh, just remind me they're there, can you? He knew they were there. He looked at that city and thought, Yeah, I see the angels around there. Oh, my servant's like bricking himself about this thing. Oh, Lord, open his eyes. Give him five minutes of vision of, of the angels there, can you? Oh, sure. And, you know, that's how it is with us. But here tonight... There's an angel standing next to me, sitting here, right here with me. And there is one with you too. And if only we could see him, her, it, life would seem so much different. And it seems to me that particularly this is so when it comes to believers coming together. Because actually there's a gathering of angels. When two or three or more believers gather together, well, their angels are gathered. And I personally think that is the explanation of that very enigmatic verse in 1 Corinthians 11 which talks about some matter to do with the, uh, the running of an ecclesia, of a group of believers coming together. And He says, do this because of the angels. I know there's all 101,001 different explanations, but uh, that's the one that I go for. I really go for that. Because there's angels there. Now, we should tread respectfully and with care of course knowing that we are in God's presence that the angel is there with us and I really do believe this and I have felt this so many times in very difficult situations I mean physically dangerous situations and also other awful situations in a more emotional sense um, I've felt that presence of the angel and I've often asked people this question, like we've had a group discussion about this matter, and I've said, um, anyone think they've ever seen an angel? And you'd be surprised how many people who I can say are the most phlegmatic, detached, uh, sort of people who are not at all emotional and not into seeing you know, visions or, or putting rabbits out of sleeves or whatever. So many of those types of people say, well, you know what, actually, yeah. You know, actually, there was such a situation that happened to me. And yeah, actually, yeah, someone appeared. And uh, I, I, I can say that as as well. Uh, and I'm also, if you know me, not the, the hyper-emotional type of guy at all. I'm far too phlegmatic and detached uh, academic, almost. Um, but I've had those situations, and I believe you have. Now, that means... That wherever we go and whatever we do, the angel is with us and is leading us just as Peter was led out of prison.